Hi, this is Cliff Rigo for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Thanks for tuning in. This is another um, dialogue tape. As you can hear, I'm seated comfortably on a full-blown, magnificent mountain river, not really a creek. Although it is officially called the creek, frequently that's the case here. In my view, that's always so disrespectful. Let's see what it sounds like. So, our theme this early afternoon, late morning, let's see, it's Wednesday, the 29th of August, 2018, and I'm about halfway through, spatially, my Vidrishin's uh, counterclockwise circumambulation of the Wolaus. See if I come over this way. We'll mute the sound of the river. I'm seated right next to a white fur seedling. And I'm in partial shade, which is necessary because uh, even though a cold front has come through and we're probably a good 4 or 5 C below climate average, it's about 6 C in the morning, here at about 14, 50 meters. The river, by the way, I just checked it, just pulled the thermometer out. It's 10C, so that's important to watch with climate crisis. So I'm this season trying to watch it uh, as much as possible. Not just for the oxygen content, but how quickly it's responding as a movement in relationship to the ambient uh, temperature. But anyway, um, our theme for this morning, early afternoon, I'll just throw it into the double circle of dialogue, is, let's see, the formal title sounds very philosophical. That's fine in, in a printed context. Spoken, it sounds a little bit awkward. Is thought in five species of conclusionary rhetoric. Hmm. Thought in five species of conclusionary rhetoric. I haven't quite written this talk down, but I've been uh, working on the theme, conclusionary rhetoric, that means arguing if we were sitting out here just backpacking, uh, that's arguing ass backwards, <laughs> that uh, you begin with a conclusion, or rather in a general way, that's very important for the dialogue circle. Thought... likes to hide its conclusions 
And you could almost say it's proportional to how attached one is to those conclusions. And uh, so species, now what does that mean? So we're watching the movement of thought right here, right now. We're doing it together as we, I speak in the dialogue circle. And these species of conclusionary rhetoric are blocks. It's like taking this magnificent river, we're drinking the water straight out of the river. And maybe we'll even do a pause in a while and go down and do a, a Wim Hof uh, ice bath. Just for refreshment. But it's running absolutely pure. And it's coming from source more than twice this altitude, you get 3,000 meters. And it has a very steep fall, so it's really rushing. Now, if we were to build a dam, heaven forbid, that's a block of the free flow of energy. So what we're looking for, as naturalists looking not just at this river, but at the whole of consciousness as we know it, as it's playing itself out right here, right now, thought and thinking, well, they are things, these conclusionary rhetoric, these five different species, we'll get back to that in a moment, that are in the way, that are causing mischief, that are causing disharmony. And the more we hold on to them, this is all going on unawares, but the task of the dialogue circle is to make it uh, visible alone and together, so we're watching it together. Because we all do this, right? It's not we, it's thought that's doing it. And now, why would you hold... It's very simple. Why we hold on to things that are essentially self-destructive on a very micro to a macro scale, patterns of movement or energy, self-destructive patterns of movement. Now, why would we be so stupid? Well, um, because we want to hold on to something that we thought sees as being precious. And the content that is what we're holding on to, that is uh, not relevant. So you generalize it, like in mathematics, we're holding on to A. And this happens in politics, it happens in science, it happens in the arts, it happens in organized religion, it happens generally everywhere. And is obviously, um, as big as the earth itself, but only when it comes to humankind. Outside of thought and thinking, as it manifests in human beings, one would be hard-pressed to find 
doing our natural history, now looking at the whole circle of living creature in nature, to find examples of something similar going on in the natural world. We've talked about that before. So we're using language uh, very, very carefully, but not hobbling our dialogue by trying to be too precise when that's not relevant. So we modulate like uh, good climbers, good backpackers, or even good kayakers. This river isn't deep enough to run. Not that I have any experience with that. So it's crystal clear, looking down at a glacial mix of rocks and granite, the greenstone, the basalt. So it makes it rainbow colors. It's actually magnificent. Well, we're using the language in the dialogue as it unfolds uh, with great care in the defining circle of care is clarity. We want to get it clear as possible. So some words we're using in slightly different ways. Uh, frequent listeners to the dialogue tapes know that conflict is defined in a loose way, but showing the difference as a uh, conflict, uh, a pattern of self-destructive energy that sticks it's repeated over and over and over again, even though it will ultimately um, cause collapse. Well, obviously in the world of nature, that uh, doesn't generally happen. It would not only be an exception, but it would violate the laws in a general way of nature's what you could call water course way, or what we've talked about before, 100% invariably truth and function. If something doesn't move in a true way in terms of energy and natural intelligence, it's um, almost invariably eliminated. Now, is that true? <laughs> so the difference between truth and content and truth and function is simply, again, movement. Truth in function is not projecting what is true, is watching the possibility of contradictions, frictions, or what we in music call mistunes, as it happens, as it unfolds. So, it sounds like a trivial thing, but I always say this rhetorically to stop uh, people dead in their tracks. In, in music, you don't try to play in tune. The only thing you do is you watch when you're not in tune, both in space and time. And time means that you're beginning too late, too, too soon, or not playing with the proper kind of movement articulation. So thought in five species of Inclusionary rhetoric. Well, what are those five species? 
this um, mountain river that we're listening to. For you sound designers out there, I hate that term. I hope somebody soon deconstructs it. For people who study living sound and are serious about it, that is not white noise. This, it's the sound that contains all sounds. Like Rainer Maria Rilke used to say that the smell of earth is the smell that holds all smell. But for me, the sound is the sound that holds all sound. It's the sound of rushing water. It's a great gift to be able to sit here and shout out <laughs> above <laughs> the sound designer's noise level. The danger of sound designs as a, uh, as a comic relief, it should be obvious that um, it's almost entirely a digital medium, which means that the people who are doing it have no experience with living acoustic sound. And so they have tremendously powerful, way too powerful for their own good, computers at their fingertips and can produce layer upon layer, strata upon stratum of uh, digital sound, which is totally dead. Even if it's recorded from an acoustic environment, that's just one of the many problems why we question sound design. But this, this river, if we were to run, as I say, on foot, parallel as much as possible, it's going to slam into a dam, and almost for 100%, we're not exaggerating, uh, be tapped off. It's like a blood lidding for irrigation. So that's a block. Keep that in mind. We are sacrificing, killing this river. That means that any uh, trout or, in the past, salmon, not no longer, but a bull trout here, it cannot migrate. And uh, so they would be um, landlocked as streamlocked. They would not be able to go past that dam. And uh, so that is a collective uh, ethical choice to block and kill this river that was made before anyone listening to this tape was ever uh, born. It's just a legacy, something of the past. So we're not concerned about legacy. That's the gift of philosophy. The only thing that philosophy and doing the dialogue circle is really concerned about is truth and function and to understand why we are so rational and highly irrational at the same time. You see, it does uh, require a great deal of technology to tap off this water and distribute it uh, fairly 
um, between quotes the different uh, irrigators that depend on the water but uh, we'll come back to that perhaps later so the five species of conclusionary rhetoric so that's arguing from a conclusion normally in clear thinking we're trying to understand something so um, the normal um, feature of a clear movement of thought and thinking in science for example or in philosophy or in the arts is that you have this mutual arising of fact and theory so we're confronted with a fact like problem say that we have no fish in this river and we want to understand why well the temperature could be too high so where we draw that line well we have to ask the fish and to observe very carefully if it goes above what 13, 14, 15 C, is it going to be 20 C? Well, that it carries progressively less oxygen. So they, well, at a certain point, each species is going to, just like white bark pines with the too hot and dry climate, they're going to click out, die. And that's happening to us as we speak. Although our conclusionary rhetoric disempowers clear thinking about that very fact. So what are these five species of conclusionary rhetoric? Well, um, in the spirit of being um, easily um, learned by heart, it's just a ten-step little pattern that you do. You have strong talk, sweet talk, smart talk, hate talk, and back talk. So those are five different species. And what uh, uh, we want to do in dialogue alone and together is just as naturalists watch those in ourselves and in others as they move, as they manifest. And uh, one could easily keep a journal just watching conclusionary rhetoric. Just turn on the television, listen to the radio, read uh, newspapers, magazines, on the internet, uh, social media, uh, among friends, in oneself. And we all uh, uh, have idiosyncratic mixtures of this conclusionary rhetoric, including myself. So um, it's just a uh, reflexive aspect of thought and thinking. But only, and this is the key point, when we're ignorant of thought as a movement, as a function, how it's conditioning, shaping our behavior shaping our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with this river. What is my relationship with this water? Well, I'm totally dependent on it here. And as a footnote, on this circumambulation, this season, this 2018 
trek around the whole of the mandala of the Wallawas in the Eagle Camp wilderness, well, uh, it's been a real problem with hot, dry, smoke, and lack of water, even at altitude, because there's very little snow anywhere at the altitude. And so you can be on whole ridges, uh, which uh, I'm just coming down from, which would normally on north-facing aspects have very deep uh, fern snow, that snow about halfway on its way to glacier ice. And uh, those have all disappeared. So we're, just like the Arctic now, is the multi-year ice has given way um, to one-year ice, which is much less thick, about a meter and a half and whatnot. But it's very similar. And so we're dependent on uh, last year's snow. And if it wasn't a good snow year, like last year, 39% is the official number, probably less, depending on where you're measuring it. Well, um, you're, where's the water going to come from? Even springs that normally, if one knows them, run reliably, I've encountered being dry and so you're trekking to a spring and it's dry, so you spend a, a dry night camp and you'll never forget it. Not having any water. You always try to have at least a weeder with you for an emergency. But here it's like uh, water? <laughs> the best water in the universe. And it's super abundant. And the sound has been flowing unbroken continuously since we exited gradually 12,000 years ago the Pleistocene into the Holocene and now into that's the interglacial period and now into the unknown of the Anthropocene, the era of cause where human beings become the main formative force on the planet, also geologically. So five species of conclusionary rhetoric. So anything that's conclusionary rhetoric is by definition wrong. And uh, it's doubly wrong if we're unaware both of the fact that it's wrong and that we're doing it, right? So in dialogue, we catch, tap each other on the head and say, hey, uh, Cliff, shut up, don't you see what you're doing? And then Cliff stops and we look at this together and say, yes, quite right. And so you're blessed when somebody, like really good musicians, say in a world-class string quartet, they are blessed when somebody says, don't that that C sharp just has to be a tad higher. <laughs> that's not an insult. That's a blessing because you discover something together. It's always a circle, right? You're not in a pyramid trying to dominate, impose your order. So having a map of five species is not imposing anything. 
is simply suggesting, it's like a theory, a new way of looking at thought and thinking when we're doing it right here, right now, together. So these five species, strong talk, smart talk, sweet talk, hate talk, back talk. Well, what do they have in common? Well, they're coming out of this generative movement of conclusionary rhetoric. That's number one. Number two is that they are all tacit, silent, unconscious attempts to dominate first and foremost with oneself because you're playing, we're playing false with ourselves. That we don't really, we stop the movement of truth and function. So we're already firmly outside of natural intelligence in the world of nature. And we're deceiving ourselves in a very deep way. Strong talk, sweet talk, smart talk, hate talk. Back talk. Well, see if you can think of others. We just want a handful to get the idea. Well, strong talk, we all have a sense of that. Of um, most politics these days, worldwide, it's like a pandemic. There could be very subtle reasons for that that we're not going to go into. But strong talk, assertively. Um, I'm being polite now, <laughs> assertively uh, putting a position out there and saying that it's true and that you're um, either deliberately attacking the other's uh, position or it's implied. So right away we see the very deep, profound difference between, on the one hand, debate, like they teach at university and even high schools, in dialogue. Debate always has that aspect of winners and losers, two guns pointed at each other. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but looking, say, a theory, say we want to understand, um, well, what we were just talking about with this river. We'll keep the name of the river secret. So it's an anonymous alpine river. 12,000 years of unbroken sound. It's the oldest living thing here. 12 times older than the oldest white bark pond. The sound has been totally uninterrupted. But just, what, three kilometers further downstream, it rams into a very small dam and is almost entirely tapped off. Strong talk. So the key feature that we don't want to see is say that um, I want to continue getting all the perks and benefits of um, 
saying something like Empire or something like um, the violence of hydrocarbon man but I don't want to see the consequences of my actions but when anyone opposes that I want to make sure that I get them out of the way and now, now we're starting to see how this works in politics and we have um, degenerated to the point I would say personally that uh, this entertainment pseudo-democracy that we have, a kind of reality show, with very real consequences, by the way, but it, it's a reality show in the sense that it has zero truth and function, as well as zero uh, democracy. Uh, just because you can vote every two or four or five years or whatever, that doesn't make for democracy, right? So the difference between debate and dialogue, there you have it. So what is um, a scientific debate say about uh, what is causing the death of the white bark pines? Well, you have the fact, which is the death, uh, illnesses like white pine blister rust and mountain pine beetle and all the rest of it. And um, then you w uh, want to understand uh, what are the deepest causes. So you put out different theories and look at their relative explanatory power and consistency. So we're saying that science is not free of conclusionary rhetoric. What makes science different in the spirit of self-correction and truth and function is science at its best. And that is simply because we become aware of our theories, if we're doing good science, and especially we're willing to give them up to die to them if the evidence suggests that's imperative. So strong talk. And that's how it manifests in science. But in politics, obviously, it is much grosser and uh, much less aware and also much more overtly violent. That basically people uh, uh, want what they identify with and what they um, um, sense as uh, order. And they identify with that order. So anything that comes along and threatens it, they want to stop dead in their tracks. And um, that's always a form, from the point of view of dialogue, a form of uh, subtle violence. So sweet talk. Well, we all know that with the relatively recent it's um, 
basically parallels the advent of the Anthropocene, of human-caused, not just climate crisis, but change of the whole geology of the Earth. It parallels the advent of the commercialization as a movement, the commercialization of everything. So sweet talk, the most uh, obvious form, is the advertisement. And personally, I came of age in the world of television, and so I've never been in a world where free, free of nonstop, 24-7, um, sweetening my perception of the world and trying to convince me to eat this, buy that, drive this, or do whatever. Well, um, that's worth the um, study in itself, obviously. And many people have devoted themselves and written books on that. One of the, the best is Manufacturing Consent. No Logo. So that's Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein. And then the study of someone like the um, nephew of Sigmund Freud, that will totally, <laughs> Edward Bernays, totally uh, transform your way of looking at psychoanalysis, how violent that can be and is. And uh, Adam Curtis has done excellent um, work hyper-normalization, the century of the self, and making that all very clear, this manipulation of thought and thinking, but only on a very uh, surface level. All three, Chomsky, Klein, and Curtis, do not go, and this is in a way mysterious, to the level of the generative movement of thought and thinking and consciousness as a whole. So that would be the key difference of what we're doing in the dialogue circle right here and right now. So we're looking at sweet talk, of trying to convince people what to do. And that is basically strong talk, sweet talk, that pretty much covers <laughs> the whole of uh, what passes for political discourse. And so if that dominates thought and thinking, I would propose that clear thinking is no longer possible. It's based simply on like-dislike, pleasure, pain, so in fear that um, being a part of the group or not the part of the group, running counter to the consensus or being a part of the majority. So strong talk, sweet talk. And sweet talk can be infinitely subtle. Now, is that true that sweet talk is a form of violence, a subtle form of violence? Well, yes, indeed. If you think that uh, this is changing now, but until recently, say we were doing a course at a university, and the undergrads coming in in North America will have seen 12,000 continuous hours 
of commercial television. Of course, now social media and the internet is starting to take the place of that, but in many ways that's even worse. And uh, as that means 1.3 years, we're not talking about the 12,000 years of this river, but 1.3 years of continuous brainwashing of trying to manipulate thought and thinking collectively and individually of what to do, what to think. Well, depending on where you're listening to this dialogue tape, I've actually experienced the transformation of the European political landscape. Each country is going to be slightly different, but in um, a country like the Netherlands, I feel very close to, in a way, culturally part Dutch, as I say, speak the language fluently and uh, feel very much at home there. Well, that has politically totally been transformed in the past two decades under the influence of this hyper-normalization, Edward Bernays style of brainwashing and what you could call the vulgar Americanization of political discourse. And we won't mention names, but this in-your-face style of highly nationalistic, perhaps even outright racist um, rhetoric, conclusionary rhetoric, which has now become quite common as a species of false debate, not dialogue, but false debate in Dutch discourse, that was almost non-existent. It's like a, a weed which has come, on, come in and taken over a pristine Dutch metal. And it's only taken, it happens very quickly. So that's when politicians start hiring high-powered, expensive American consultants to construct, really, their political image. So it has absolutely zero truth and function, totally inauthentic, but it depends on the social machine, whether it be social media now or television, and to a lesser degree on radio. It's always much more difficult to deceive with sound. I've never thought that before, but I think that, is that true? I'm asking myself. It's much easier. That's why I avoid like the plague. <laughs> of course, I'm based out here in the wilderness with this water. The visual pollution of um, the internet and everything thrown at you that is projecting this strong talk sweet talk, especially in terms of ideology and politics. It's much easier simply to read a few paragraphs of what a politician writes to get the sense of their thinking. Well, strong talk, sweet talk, 
So there you have it. Smart talk. What's that? Well, that would be something that I would be guilty of or any kind of people um, that tend towards, what do we call them, uh, intellectuals, artists, scientists, um, writers, people who uh, do that kind of uh, uh, work daily as a part of their livelihood, teaching. Well, um, if you're a scientist, say you're a climate scientist, well, uh, we all want to impress our colleagues, right? There, it's the more unaware we are of thought as a movement, which is generally universal. That um, well, scientists aren't free of that. That doesn't mean that they're going to deceive the public with false theories, but they um, get in the way by means of conclusionary rhetoric again holding on to a theory and creating a projected image by a certain use of language or mathematics or music. Yeah, take music, for example, that um, uh, musicians in the classical new music talk about a contradiction in new music well, they do that habitually. And a reaction to that, so you have what I call maximalism, minimalism, I don't want to go into that, but uh, um, based on notation or anti-notation, now we're going to have all improvised music and all the rest of it. Well, um, that's all based not on truth and function, that playing in tune with the mind, with intelligence, getting rid of contradictions, but it's based on mere projection. I can create a whole career in music by projecting my sophistication in notation. It's like we've all seen these Einstein in front of the uh, chalkboard with a whole cloud of equations that he probably only partially understood, and we certainly do not. And that creates an aura of uh, um, omniscience, that all knowingness, knowing something very profound that you have no clue about. That's an extreme form, but in this extreme, I'm not saying that he was doing that, but using that as an easily recognizable um, cultural icon for this smart talk. And it's probably just equally deadly in the arts as it is in science. But um, until now, um, <laughs> we have, of course, um, no philosophy of art, let alone a philosophy of music. So listening to this river, that's when I say something, question the wisdom of a concept of teaching kids to be sound designers. <laughs> well, um, that's why we need a philosophy of music.
to create a free open space. We slow down. We're not talking about legacy. We're not talking about computers. We're talking about musical consciousness and living sound and the relationship between them and the meaning of music as a whole within the whole of living culture. But don't take my word for it. You can tune into our theater, The New, where that's hundreds if not thousands of documentaries. And stick with Naomi Klein, stick with um, um, Chomsky, stick with Adam Curtis. That's even a better one because he um, has a more developed sense of sound. But generally, uh, documentaries have appallingly bad soundtracks. We would be much better going back to the old Charlie Chaplin days, who was an excellent composer and pianist, by the way, of doing uh, silent films and gradually reintroducing sound, which is played on the spot with the <laughs> like they used to record sound or play uh, together with films um, in the performance theater space. And then eventually that was recorded, of course. And very gradually it became more and more abstract and removed, abstract in the negative sense of being removed from truth, not just uh, reality, but from truth. So now uh, I would imagine most documentarians hardly know the people who are producing the music that they use and abuse. They might know the sound designer who's pasting everything together. But even that. So what does the sound that we hear, the music, have to do with almost nothing? It's just something like the supermarket of having Muzak, they used to call it. That company, Edward Bernays, kind of, giving you the, um, the urge to buy things you know that are going to be bad for you. <laughs> Spend more money than you have. Strong talk, sweet talk, smart talk. So you can see this great potential for smart talk. That it's a form of violence, right? I'm smarter and more knowledgeable than you and use that as a way of domination and control, knowingly or unknowingly. But at the background is the conclusion, that idea of order, that music, that way of looking at nature, that political system, that way of thinking about control of resources that I'm hardly even aware of, but I know, sense in my gut, that my security depends on that. So there you have it, that identifying with something through which we obtain a false sense of security. Now why, very quickly, run with it. Why is it false? Why? Because it's self-destructive. It's a self-destructive, it's a movement of energy, a movement which turns around itself, closes itself off from the world, the universe, and then implodes, destroys itself.
So, hate talk, our force of the five species. Well, that hardly needs, by now, any serious consideration. Just turn on the radio. And um, not only are we told what to believe, you see, this in Europe has, uh, is much less pronounced, but now, uh, in the past um, um, two or three years, is starting to take Europe by storm as well. So whole political parties that are not overtly, explicitly organized around hate but it's right under the surface because of fear and security and fearing the other, the other religion, the other color of human being, everything that's not a part of your petty nationalism. Well, it's very tragic to see a great country like the Netherlands fall prey to these... Um, totally corrupt and corrupting ideas. In the media, the news plays a tremendous part because what is a good journalist? Well, they're doing, in my view, what we're doing right now, the philosophy of journalism. Why are they saying what they're saying? Step back. The broader, not just historical context. There's a historical context of this river, right? And the European-American relationship with this river that's hardly more than a hundred years old that's been absolutely devastating to the whole of the watershed, not just this river. So you step back in a wider circle. If you're going to write about this, explore it, make photographs, whatever, that wider context is crucial not just the history, but of why we could be so stupid, get caught, knowingly and unknowingly, in these trapped movements of self-destruction. So hate talk. And the last uh, back talk is more under the radar, as they say. It's more difficult to get explicit, but that's only at first. And all of these talks can easily, because they share a common source, conclusionary rhetoric, which shares a common source in what? In thought itself that I identify with something, a nation, a theory, and then fear everything tacitly, silently, that attacks that thing with which I identify. So coming from thought, coming from conclusionary rhetoric, coming to these individual, they all merge and interpenetrate. And frequently you can find examples of all five going on almost simultaneously. And as we've already hinted, every subculture, say like the subculture of climate scientists or the subculture 
of musicians or the subculture of photographers or whatever will have their own idiosyncratic mix. So you get how it's fun to look at these in exactly the same way. Well, okay, we're here as naturalists, so we're in a conifer forest here, so we have green fir, white fir. Uh, quite noticeably, all the larch are thick with hypodemella. It's a fungus that uh, kills the tree from the bottom up. It's, it's almost universal now, so why the hell is that going? So you get the idea. We're just looking around, and the more we give our energy to it, the better lookers we become. And we're running with it, just like this water. We're moving very lightly, very quickly. Lightly means that, okay, if it's not right about the largest, give it up. But I want to understand what the hell is going on, because it's new, unseen and very likely related to a hotter, drier climate. So all of these talks interpenetrate, and back talk is now becoming one of the most common that, uh, say, I frequently tell people chance encounters and whatnot. Well, you know, we all realize um, that uh, it's evidently become much more difficult for people to communicate with one another on the world stage as well as in the rural, so-called rural communities where I'm now um, only 10 kilometers away from here sitting in the wilderness. So there's a lot of hate talk, there's a lot of smart talk, and there's a lot of back talk. Now back talk is like a prefab uh, way of thinking for a subculture. Say for like climate denial, you could easily catalog, and they have been, but that does not disempower them, and that does not make them less violent, and that does not... Um, um, heal the fact that they are firmly in control, the denialists. Almost worldwide of the political uh, situation, certainly in English-speaking countries, which are always, for some reason, when it comes to violence, the worst subtle forms of violence. The legacy of empire. So back talk. Again, my contention is, is that all of these talks, strong talk, sweet talk, smart talk, hate talk, bad talk, they're always a subtle form of violence. Because what you're attempting to do is like our attempt to control this river. So with a river, you can't quite hit it on the head, but you can certainly build a dam and tap it off. So it's movement of uh, truth and function that for a river is self-purification, self-organization. So that's what's happening in our dialogue right now as we speak. So when you turn this tape 
off. We're about ready to bring it to a conclusion in its proper coda. Well, that's what we meditate on, both alone and together. It all begins and ends with violence, the more subtle forms, attempts to control our own behavior, the behavior of another. That's always violent. So back talk are like talking points. And so there's no real, uh, what is the word? There we have it. That's a good way to end listening. Our listening, intelligence, and love, and compassion, are they really different? Is there really difference between listening to music? I'm up here composing now. So composing is listening. I'm not designing sound. Feeling for whom? Oh, the transformation of feeling into what? Into audible landscape. Music, you stranger. Passion, which is outgrown us. Our innermost being transcending, driven out of us. Holiest of departures. Inner worlds now the most practiced of distances. As the other side of thin air. Pure, immense, no longer habitable. Well, that's a good way to end Ryoka to music. Rein, riesig, nicht mehr bewohnbar. So thanks for listening. And give it a whirl as a natural historian, not just of water, but of consciousness. Just turn on a radio, turn on the internet, and listen to smart talk. It can be in any order. Smart talk, hate talk, strong talk, sweet talk, back talk. The talking points. And where is the listening in any of that? Near and low. It's nowhere. So we simply watch alone and together as a movement. Why we don't listen. Okay, thanks for listening. This is Cliff signing off for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Ciao for now.